Turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. We are in the last two sermons on the book of Habakkuk, um, which I think taking a 12-week uh, sermon or 12-week series out of a three-chapter book, I think that's pretty good. Um, I actually think we could have taken a lot longer. We're going to do a big chunk of scripture today in chapter 3. Um, and it's been a pretty exciting sermon series thus far. Um, I've learned a lot. I hope you've learned a lot. Um, and then we have a new sermon series coming up in a couple weeks. Who knows what that's going to be? Just be in prayer about that for us. Um, but for now, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1 says this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shijinioth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the sun, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction, and curtains of the mountains of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Verse 16 says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is good. Your word is true. It is infallible. We are quite fallible. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have minds that are focused on you, that we would see your truth and nothing less, that you would reveal to us more and more your son Jesus through these scriptures. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you an illustration. How many people have ever met somebody um, through another friend or a mutual acquaintance, and they try to warn you? Hey, I'm going to introduce you to so-and-so. Now, let me just warn you, they're a little bit this, or a little bit, they're a little rude, rough around the edges, they're very quiet and reserved. Uh, they, they just try to warn you about what this person will be like. And then you meet that person, and they're nothing like that. And your friends are like, wow, they're normally so reserved, or blah, blah, blah. You, you have this preconceived notion as to how they should be, and you meet them, and uh, you find out that, well, they might be like that, but they're also quite different than how they were described. Um, or maybe you're the one that was described. And then you go in, and, and, and people are like, wow, I, I, 
I anticipated all these things about you. We heard so many things about you. We expected this. As a pastor, I go and meet some people, and they won't know that I'm a pastor. And uh, they'll act one way, and then when they ask me, like, what, are you do what do you do for a living? I'll say, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor or a minister. The whole atmosphere of the room changes. Like all of a sudden they have to name off all the th things they've done and how good they've been. And it's like, whoa, you know, I'm not Jesus. I'm just a pastor. Um, it's not up to me whether you go to heaven or hell. You don't have to do this now. Um, all of a sudden the swearing stops. <laughs> like at one hand, like they're swearing up a storm and then, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, I can't believe I said all those swear words. Well, I'm not Jesus and I don't like swearing either, but it's him you're going to have to answer to, not to, not me, right? Because they have a preconceived notion as to what a pastor should be like or what a pastor should do. That being said, in this in in Christianity in general, there's a perceive or, or there's a perception about Jesus that sometimes is uh, not entirely accurate, and it's more indicative of your heart than it is of who Jesus is. Jesus is, as the Chris Tomlin sa song says, indescribable. There are so many things about him, so many things that we that we learn of him. There are so many words to use to describe him, and they're insufficient. That's why we sing songs about you know having thousands of years to praise, but it never being long enough, because we can't say enough about him. But how you see Jesus shows the world your heart, and it reveals to yourself how you see him. Now, this is not a bad thing in and of itself, but it can – oh, how should I put this? It can shortchange you in the experience with Jesus if you only see him by one or two characteristics. For Habakkuk, he's just gotten through this exchange with God. He prayed to God. God spoke back. He prayed again. God spoke back. And now here he is praying. He's praying a, a song of praise. It culminates with – uh, rottenness has entered my bones. I am weak, but I will patiently wait as you in, as 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 you invade those who have invaded us, as you take care of the enemy that has come against us. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus is uh, a warrior. Now, this is not the most popular way to look at Jesus. There are quite a few ways that people look at Jesus and are very comfortable with. If we only latch on to one or two characteristics of Jesus, he stays two-dimensional. Even, even if those attributes of him, those characteristics, even if they're true, we, we are very limited in our understanding of who he is. And it stunts our growth as a person. It also limits how much we understand about the word of God. If you don't understand warrior Christ, warrior Jesus who comes with, with a sword coming out of his mouth, destroying his enemies, if you, don't, if you don't see him or can't see him like that, a lot of the Bible is not going to make sense to you. It's going to seem brutal and violent and senseless or, or needless. But if you will understand this facet along with the others, then you will get a more well-rounded picture, a three-dimensional picture of who Jesus is, a realistic, as much as our little minds can, we will understand Jesus that much more. So here are some of the ways that we, um, as I almost trip and fall to my death, um, this is, these are some of the ways that we see Jesus and we're quite comfortable with. Number one is carpenter Jesus. My son asked me the other day, Jesus was a carpenter? And I said, yes. Why? Because his dad was a carpenter. He kind of took over his, 
his father's trade. He, he, he worked with his hands. And we love that aspect of Jesus. We love Jesus, the blue-collar Jesus who works with his hands. He's like Ron Swanson. He's always making everything himself. He's not, um, he's not going to the store to buy every little thing. He's, he's, not tired. he's not afraid of hard work. He's carpenter Jesus, carrying his cross. You know, I'm surprised he didn't make his own cross, let alone carry it. We love that about Jesus. We love, you know, especially if you're on Pinterest all the time and trying to make things out of pallets and things like that. You look at Jesus and say, oh, yeah, you know, getting your hands dirty, cutting yourself and, and, and getting hurt while you're, while you're working with your hands. What a beautiful thing. We love that about Jesus. And indeed, that was Jesus. I doubt that when he carried his cross to Golgotha that his hands were soft and, and not, not scarred from years of work swinging a hammer or, or running a saw or that type of thing. Carpenter Jesus. There's uh, Jesus with the kids. We love Jesus with the kids, right? The disciples come and rebuke the little kids. Hey, scram kids, this is Jesus. You can't play with him. And he's like, no, he rebukes the disciples. Bring the little children to me. He's playing with them. The kids like him. They want to be with him. So obviously Jesus was a fun guy to be around. He knew how to play with these children and, and probably wrestle and roll around with them. He He was... He was kid-friendly, and we love that because we love people who love our kids, don't we? When I see somebody rude to one of my children, now for me, I could be like, okay, kids, come along. But for my wife, she will stab you in the eye. Do not be rude to her children because she gets that mama bear thing going, and she wants to protect them. And you moms, you know what that's all about, right? We love those. It's not uncommon for me to throw my wife under the bus during a sermon. So, um <laughs> Um, where was I? So we love Jesus who loves the children because he seems safer, right? Well, if kids love him, then he must be a good guy. We love that about him. We love Jesus with the kids. We love benevolent Jesus. Benevolent Jesus is always doing something for somebody. He's always healing somebody or, or giving out food to the multitudes. He's always working in the soup kitchen. He's always volunteering at the food bank. He's always, he's always giving. He's always so benevolent. He's always doing uh, unto others and, and helping the less fortunate. We love that about Jesus, right? Because so often we're those people who need that help. We, we know what it's like to be in need. So when someone comes along and says, I want to give, we, we, we love that about Jesus. And we don't kick against that. Nobody ever says, I hate that giving Jesus. No. Even non-Christians appreciate that. Even non-Christians can appreciate carpenter Jesus and, and, and Jesus with the kids. Number four is miraculous Jesus. Everybody loves miraculous Jesus, right? Somebody gets healed, multitudes get fed, walking on water, turning, uh, that, turning water into wine. Love that. Love that Jesus can do miraculous things. And, and praise God, he still does those miraculous things. Praise God that, that our God is a God of, of the supernatural, that he does things that we couldn't naturally do ourselves. And he doesn't, he doesn't answer every whim that we have. And I praise God for that because sometimes we pray for really dumb things. But sometimes we even pray for really good things. And God gives us a better answer. God gives us something that we couldn't even anticipate. God gives us something that is perfect and in perfect timing. We love miraculous Jesus. Theological Jesus. I love theological Jesus. I love watching him speak to the, the, the Pharisees, talking about the things of God and him pointing out what was wrong. 
They thought they were so high and mighty and so self-righteous and, and just knew so much about God. And oh, we follow Moses and blah, blah, blah. And, and Jesus just goes in there and like karate chops them in the throat with theology and just teaches them right about you know God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And just they, they would concoct these traps to, to try to get Jesus. We'll, we'll come up with these questions that nobody can answer. And then he'd just walk out of them unscathed. And the Pharisees would be like, oh, we thought we had him. And, they, and Jesus would be like, yeah, simple answer, boom. Love that about Jesus. As Christians, we should be developing a theology. A theology is just a, a, a knowing about God. It's not a big scary word. Everybody has a theology. Uh, 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 an atheist has a theology that there is no God. Their theology is that there is no God. Everybody has a theology. You have a theology. I have one. And we love Jesus because he has the perfect theology. He has the perfect understanding of God. He has the perfect understanding because he is God. Along with that teacher Jesus. Theological Jesus is not just um, going in there, or excuse me, teacher Jesus is not just the one going in and sparring with the Pharisees. He's the one in the synagogue teaching, helping us, revealing to us the things of, 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 of himself. Last week we read from the book of Nehemiah where, where Ezra the priest stood up and they had built a big platform pulpit thing for him to preach to the people so everybody could hear. And while he was reading the, the word of God, people went out um, into the crowds because it was a huge crowd and started asking them, you know, do you understand this? Do you understand what's being taught right now? Do you understand what's being preached right now? Because they wanted everybody to be on the same page and know. And Jesus is the same. That comes from Christ. The, the ability and the, and the will, the, the, the desire to teach that people might understand. I could, I could come up here today and I could come with all the biggest, fanciest theological words and terms. But if we don't learn, it doesn't matter. If we don't go out and love our neighbor, what, what profit is there? If we don't go out and preach the gospel, we've just wasted an hour and a half of our day. We could have slept in and went to flows for breakfast. But see, we want to come together. We want to be fed. We want to be nourished. We want to give to others and then go out in the knowledge of Jesus, serving and, and preaching the gospel of Jesus. And that takes teaching, and that takes biblical teaching. Um, there's Big Brother Jesus. And not the George Orwell 1984 Big Brother, but Big Brother Jesus, meaning the, the Jesus who come alongside you, protects you. He's like a big brother. If you've ever had a big brother who was a, a good big brother, I'm not saying he never wrestled with you or punched you in the arm or gave you the dead leg, that type of thing, but, but he, was, he was always protective of you watched over you, walked you to school, even though nobody walked him to school, took you to the store, you know, let him tag along, let you tag along with him. Big brother Jesus is, is, the, is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is our big brother in faith. He's the son of God. We are children of God as well. He's our big brother. And he loves us and he protects us just like that. He looks after us. And I, I love, I would love to imagine you know, him just always around us, you know, the things he keeps us from. There are things we get our hands into that we shouldn't, and man, we burn ourselves, and we, we learn from that. But there are times, countless times, I can only imagine where, where, where he keeps us from that. Danger that was maybe too much for us. Sin that was maybe so uh, devouring that we wouldn't have come out of it. But because we are his, his, his little brother or his little sister, he protects us from that. 
He watches over us. Big brother Jesus. See, all these things are very, all of these attributes of Jesus are all very warm, comforting. There's forgiving Jesus. We absolutely need forgiving Jesus. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that Jesus has a mark and we're way down here. We, our best efforts just, just keep making things worse for us. Yeah, but I gave, but you don't love Jesus. Yeah, but I went to church, but you don't love Jesus. Yeah, but I, but I gave that person, but you don't love Jesus. Yeah, but I, I read the Bible, but you don't love Jesus, and the Bible's all about him. And so for a Christian, a Christian doesn't just do more stuff to get to Jesus. A Christian says, I need your forgiveness. That brings them up to Jesus. Your forgiveness through him is, is all you need to be brought up to him. And from there, you get to do good stuff. It's like when, I don't know if you guys ever got to do this, working with your dad or working with an, with an older relative, maybe an uncle, and, the, and you're too little to do anything, but they let you hold you know, the toolbox or carry something or hold a ladder or, hey, hold these nails for me. They, you, you can't really do much, but they want you to be involved because you show an interest. See, we don't do all the heavy lifting in Christianity. We do the proclaiming. We just proclaim the gospel, and God does all the work through his Holy Spirit. We get to be involved. We get to do something. We get to be helpful, and we get to feed the hungry, and we get to comfort the, those who are not comforted and be friends to the friendless and become a, a, a little family in this little church that just loves Jesus because we've been forgiven, not because we've done a lot of stuff. We see Jesus forgiving the, the guy on the, on the mat. He lowered, lowered him through the ceiling. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, but we want him to walk. The Pharisees are like, who are you to forgive? And he says, okay, so that you know that I'm the son of man, get up and walk as well. But they were astounded because he forgave him of his sins. We see the woman at the well. We see the, the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Him forgiving her for something as vile as adultery. God is a, is a forgiving God, and he forgives through his son, Jesus. This one is the first out of all these that's dangerous. That's the ism, Jesus. That is where somebody takes uh, some social platform or political agenda and then attaches Jesus to it. So um, it, it could be a good thing, but it could be uh, something like feminism, patriotism, um, something that uh, becomes, becomes the idol, and then Jesus kind of becomes the support of that idol. That's dangerous. That's wrong. We, we can be, you can be you know, all empowering for women. You can love our country. And we just celebrated the 4th of July. We should love our country. But our first allegiance is always to Christ. And he's not, he hasn't come to help you fulfill your political agenda. He's come to bring the kingdom of God so that people may know him and be forgiven and live with him forever and ever and ever. To become children of God so that we can repent, that we can experience his grace and all of that good stuff. And through that, you might be able to do good works, but the good works of human, you know, fighting against human trafficking and drug abuse and sexual abuse and child abuse and rape and, and, and anger and all of these things, while good efforts, Jesus did not come primarily just to fulfill those things for you. So we can't, we can't just take Jesus like a sticker, slap him on our thing, and expect him to support it. We have to realize first that we, we are the sticker on Jesus' thing on Jesus's agenda. And through that, we might do good works, but the good works in and of themselves are not our God or our idol. It's Jesus first. 
Another dangerous one is rebel Jesus. I find the people who love rebel Jesus more than uh, others are the ones themselves who want to be rebellious and generally rebellious against the church and Christians. Well, Jesus was a rebel, and I, you know, I don't have to be a part of a church. I can watch church on TV, or I can, I can just you know, worship him in my own way. And usually that's just a sign of, I just don't want to be told what to do. I want to be autonomous. I want to be my own person. I want to be my own God. And I don't need somebody telling me who Jesus is. I'll just come up with my own version of Jesus and worship him. That's rebellious, uh, or rebellion rather, and, and not worship. The Bible never tells us to come and worship Jesus in, his own, in your own way. Because if we worship Jesus in our own way, we'll, we'll choose to do it the wrong way. We'll do it in a way that's most convenient for us. We'll do it in a way that's most convenient for the group, not necessarily what is most, uh, most gratifying of Jesus or the most uh, worshipful of Jesus. And so we've got to be careful. Was Jesus rebellious? He was rebellious against those who used religion to suppress the people who truly loved God. So you see him making a whip of cords and flipping tables when in the temple the worship of God was being manipulated and perverted to be a money-making scheme. So Jesus gets mad. So does he rebel against God? No, he can't rebel against God. But he rebels against the powers that be who were using their power to suppress the worship of God. And so as Christians, we're told to be slow to anger. Not that we can't be angry, but to be slow to anger. Because for every time you see Jesus flipping tables, you see him weeping over Jerusalem. You see him uh, you know, forgiving the woman in adultery. You see him forgiving those who come to him in, 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 in humility. And so it's not our go-to expression. It's not our excuse to be angry. But then lastly, and not lastly, just lastly to, you know, for the sake of time, is warrior Jesus. You take any one of these and you highlight it too much and you're making God in your own image. But what we want to do is we want to understand as much as we can Jesus in every way. Because all of these, with the exception of maybe the last two, are, are, are ways that Jesus portrays himself. Portrays himself. And he also portrays himself, he shows us himself as warrior king Jesus. And sometimes we balk against that. We fight against that because it's not the it's not an Ann Getty's picture. You ever seen an Ann Getty's picture? She takes children and puts them in vegetables. Like, you guys don't know what I'm talking about? Ann Getty's picture. Yeah. You see a, a little baby inside some cabbage. Like, and people are just like, oh, and you usually see them like in dentist office bathrooms and things like that. Um, warrior Jesus can't be fit into that mold or that picture. Warrior Jesus comes, and, and, and he's scary. Like, honestly, you read the word, and you're like, oh my gosh, if that was before me right this second, I don't know what I'd do. And you see men like John, he does experience Jesus like that in the book of Revelation. He falls down like he's dead. I read that, and I say, that's an appropriate response. I can see how he got there. I would have fallen like I was dead, too. But warrior Christ, we have to understand, this warrior Christ is the one that has won victory for us through the cross. Warrior Jesus is the one that is, see, if we're afraid of him, we're on the wrong side of salvation. 
The good news is that if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you have asked for forgiveness, you have repented of your sin, then you go from the side of having that anger turned towards you to having that anger turned towards your enemies. You no longer fear that wrath that God has because the Bible tells us that wrath is no longer for us. That wrath is no longer something that we will experience. But man, it makes salvation that much more sweet. We, won't sca- we, we can't scare anybody into loving Jesus no more than you can scare somebody into loving you. You can't go and point a gun at somebody's head and say, Love me! And have them respond sincerely or genuinely. They might say yes, but the moment that gun's gone, they're going to call the police, as they should, and have you arrested because you're a weirdo and you need to not be doing that. But you can't... Excuse me. You can't force someone to love you. Honestly, hell should scare you. If hell does not scare you, there's something wrong. You've been watching too many of those Saw movies or something. If hell does not scare you, the idea of eternal punishment and torment, if that does not scare you at least a little bit, that should be a red flag in your life. But for Christians, we don't walk around afraid of hell because hell is not made for us. We have been saved from hell and the wrath of God. Let me read to you a couple of scriptures. And and by the way, just as a side note, this is the hardest version of Jesus to preach right now because everybody is promoting the soft Jesus, the the love-only Jesus, the one that allows you to do anything that you would like without repercussion, the one that will allow you to do anything as long as you feel it or see it to fit into your life. And so this version of Jesus, or this characteristic of Jesus, is the toughest to preach right now, but I think it's the most needed. Because unbeknownst to them, those who oppose Christ need this Christ the most. So Revelation, turn to the back of your Bible, it's right before the maps and the index. Um, Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, says this, and and write that down, I'm going to go fast, I don't want to leave you behind. Write it down in your notebook. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and this is John, John the apostle, the beloved apostle uh, or disciple. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Verse 16 says, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. All of this metaphorical, metaphorical, You know, he's not really harvesting grapes. Jesus said when he looked out into the world, he saw that the harvest was ready to be reaped, to be taken in, to be gathered. Some said that Satan had come uh, and and sown tares amongst the actual wheat, and Jesus said, let them all grow. We're going to chop them all down at the same time. So keeping that imagery in mind, Jesus says this stuff to, to the angels. Verse uh, verse 19 says, So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
and the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia. Okay. We lose the metaphor at the end there. We're giving an we're given an actual measurement. Throughout the book, you see John say, I heard a multitude that was innumerable. I heard shouts from people who were like a sea of glass. Just They just went on and on and on and on. But here he gives an exact measurement. He said that once this, this war was made, this, this, this trotting of the wine press, the blood that flowed out was as high as the bridle of a horse for 1,600 stadia. A stadia is like 600 feet, so you do the math. Miles and miles and miles. You don't, there's no veggie tales about this. There's no children's book you can find at the bookstore about this part of the Bible. Do you know why? Because nobody would buy it. It's in the last book of the Bible. Many of you haven't even made it there yet. And when you get here, you're going to be freaked out when you read the book of Revelation. But this is part of the judgment, that wrath of God that is to come. These are not the Christians that are in the wine press. These are the non-believers, those who have rejected the gift of salvation. And God will come back and the wrath of God will be poured out upon the people who have not chosen him. I say, that doesn't sound fair. I don't know. It seems like for, for, for millennia now, he's been making this appeal to us. Give your life to Christ. Live for me. Be forgiven. I love you. I'm, God is love. You've missed the mark, but I hit the mark for you. Come be with me. Be forgiven. And after thousands of years, if we still say no, then we get what we want. Revelation chapter 19. Let's keep it warm and fuzzy. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, this is the word of God, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is holy, pure, just, perfect Jesus coming in all of his glory. The days have come to an end. He has returned to the earth. He is going to make all things new. That includes separating the sheep from the goats, the Bible says. And if you're a goat, it's not going to be a good day for you. You're a sheep. You'll be forgiven. Your, your, your works will be measured and all that by the fire. But, but if you're a goat, it doesn't matter. You're done. You're, the, you're in the wine press. You're, you're the squashed one in the wine press of God. The wrath being poured out. Church, if you're a Christian today, this is not your fear. As a Christian, this is all pointed away from you. Imagine the wrath of God being poured out like a bucket, and the, and that, 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 let's say it's water being poured out upon you. It's about to hit you. You plead to Jesus for forgiveness. You just, you repent of your sins. Jesus stands in the way of that. This is why Christians love the cross so much. 
This is why we, we have them in our churches and we wear them around our necks and we put them on our Bible book covers. Because the cross was where Jesus took our wrath that we deserved for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have the righteousness of God. No chapter of the Bible says that quite like Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in, G in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Today, if you are in Christ, and that's a phrase in the New Testament that occurs some 200 times, a little bit more. In Christ, in Jesus, in the Spirit. If you are in Him, then your self-righteousness is not needed anymore. Only the righteousness of Christ is, is needed and is more than sufficient so that you might find forgiveness. But if you are not in Christ, the opposite of that being out of Christ, then condemnation still hangs over your head. You don't feel it now, but you will feel it eventually. God may seem silent in your sin, but assure, I assure you he is, he is not blind to it. And the best thing he could do is discipline you for it now so that you might find forgiveness through it rather than allow you to live your life so that you could one day find out that's what separated you from the very God you really desire anyways. Warrior King Christ has already gone and and... And not just declared victory, he has bought victory. We, we now exist in something that we would most closely rec uh, resembles guerrilla warfare. We're fighting against an enemy who is so ridiculously ignorant and dumb that thinks that he can still overthrow Christ. That he still has a leg to stand on in this battle. But the cross, the Bible says, has defeated the powers and the principalities that come against us. So now it's as if Satan's just trying to take down whoever he can on the way out. Because one day he will suffer in hell with the demons forever and ever and ever and ever, however long that might be. And you have a choice to make. This warrior Christ has fought for you. He has fought to buy you back. He has fought to bring you forgiveness. He has fought so that you can be born again and fight too. But now that you've been presented with the gospel of grace, you must make a choice. You have, through the Holy Spirit, it has been revealed to you. What is your choice? What are you going to do? Your sin separates you from Christ. But this Christ is so much more than you could ever imagine. We love our word because it tells us about Jesus. When we read Habakkuk, when we read the words of, of, of Habakkuk's prayer, we see, we see a, a man who's been changed. He's seen the one true God, and you hear his words and how he prayed. God went here and there and destroyed and raised up and, and just warred against those who had invaded us. Some of, you, some of you have sinned, and some of you have been sinned against. Bad people invade you. They've taken advantage of you. They've hurt you. They've said things. And though, and that's somewhat separate from sinning. 
being sinned against generally is somebody else sinning. Sin always has a victim. Maybe your sin is just pornography. You're by yourself. Nobody's affected. I Trust me, somebody's affected. Parents or wives or husbands, children. Somebody's going to be devastated at some point. Well, I just, you know, I just look at girls and I'm not going to do anything. Well, are you lusting in your heart? Jesus says that's already sin. Well, I just lie a little bit to protect myself. Really, the Bible tells us that's wrong. I just want to live the life I want to live. Let's just call it for what it is. I just don't want to be told what to do. Rebellion. Today is your day to lay that down. I want you to stand with me. We're going to close up. Habakkuk 3.16 says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Apparently, Habakkuk's waiting quietly will include singing a song. That will be the last few verses we, we explore next week. Being quiet doesn't mean simply just sitting there and doing nothing. For Habakkuk, this, this waiting and quiet meant worshiping his Lord. Knowing that all of the battles out there were being taken care of by him. Knowing that the warrior God that he served was not warring against him, but warring for him. Church, you might feel like God is against you. And truthfully, there are times where God disciplines you, especially if you are his child, the Bible says, that he disciplines those he considers his sons or his children. But it is to correct you and to discipline you and to bring you to a fuller knowledge of who he is. Church, today I just want you to give your life to Jesus. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That you might come to him in repentance. My favorite, my favorite parable of Jesus is the parable of the prodigal son. Young man goes off. But before he goes off, he tells his dad, Hey dad, you're going to die one day. Can I have the money you're going to give to me when you die? I don't know about you, but if my son came and said that to me, that would, that would cut me right to my heart. That he values my stuff more than the, the, the one that provided it for him. The dad says, sure, go ahead. Here you go. Here's your inheritance. The young man goes off, spends it on every lust of the flesh you can imagine. Everything, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking to, to, to satisfy his identity and how he identified himself, only to find himself penniless, broken, homeless, and alone. He takes this young Jewish boy takes a job cleaning up after pigs. If you know anything about cleanliness and the laws of cleanliness in, in the Old Testament, that was the last job you would take if you were a young Jewish boy. He looks at the pig's food and says, man, I'm so hungry, I would eat their food. Then he has this idea. I've betrayed my father. I've wasted my inheritance. I'll go work for my dad. I'll become his employee. He treats his employees really well. I'll work for him and I'll be treated okay. I'll have food and I'll earn a wage. And that'll, that'll be how I survive. Well, he sets his face to home and he goes, 
goes back with what must have been a long, hard journey of just a lot of thought and recounting and what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? What if dad says no? What am I going to do? But it says that the father saw his son from a distance. Didn't start shouting at him. Didn't wag a finger at him. Didn't hurl accusations at him. Ran after him. Threw his arms around his son. Welcomed his son back home. Threw his robe on his son. Gave him a ring, which was a power of his authority and his, his signature, if you will. Told the people, my son has returned. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's have, a, let's have a festival. Let's have a party. My son, though he was like dead, he is now alive. He has come back home. Church, we're all prodigals. We're all prodigal, wasteful children who take the inheritance of our father and throw it away on the worst of things. And now comes the part where we return back to our father. And praise God, we don't find a God who's ready to just destroy us. We find a God who's ready to welcome us back in with loving arms. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when one person gives their life to Christ. I want you to give your life to Christ today. Amen? I don't care if you've been a Christian forever or if today's the first day you've been in church in forever. Give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. You indeed are this mighty warrior, King Christ that we read about in the scriptures. But your word also says that that, that fervor that you have for, for holiness and purity is also for us. Romans 8 and something says that nothing will separate us from you. Not height nor depth, not death. Nothing will separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, many of us, we, we don't feel that today. Whether we've been a Christian, reading our Bible and going to church and doing all kinds of stuff for a long time, we might not feel that today, Lord. I thank you that your love is not about what we feel, but it's about what we know. And your word tells us that you love us. I pray, Lord, today that if there are those today here who are backslidden, that they'd give their lives to you. Oh, we know there's a way we should be living and we just don't. We have a thousand excuses, and some of them are probably valid, but Lord, we don't live for you the way we're supposed to. And I pray today, Lord, that today would be a day of a new beginning for us. There are those here today who just, maybe this is the first time they've ever heard the gospel. I pray, Lord, that I haven't butchered it, but I pray also, Lord, that, that it's been heard and received. And only you know who those people are, and we don't want to embarrass anybody, and we don't want to you know, make anybody... Uh, shy or anything, but we want people to know you. So I pray, Lord, that as this day continues, that you would show them the truth found within your gospel. That not just the truth about you, but the truth about ourselves. And Lord God, we love you. For all of us desperately need you. We have circumstances and we have things that are going on, but honestly, if we have you, we have everything. Church, we're going to take just a brief moment. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your head bowed. We're just going to rest in the Lord. All we're literally going to do is stand here and focus on Jesus for just a moment.
Heavenly Father, I pray for your people. I pray as they go out this week that life would look different to them. That where they once had hopelessness, they now have hope. Where they have lacked faith, faith is beginning to bud and to grow. Where love has been non-existent, may love begin to rise like the sun in their hearts. Jesus, you are good. We are praying for nothing less than a miracle, but we are expecting nothing less than a miracle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.